You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of July 27th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Ride with Pride, Western Airs. Unveil fun routines at annual Western Heritage Day shows by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Jefferson County kicks off two-year updates of five-year plans and regulations by Teddy Jacobson for the Golden Transcript. Arvada City Council passes 3.5% trash hauling fee increase, opt-outs included. Arvada residents to pay more for trash hauling, including those who don't use city's service. By Lillian Fuglet and Ryan Dunn, Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Wheat Ridge Farmers Market and Incubator for Local Small Businesses. By Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript and following up with various articles. Ride with Pride. Western Airs unveil fun routines at annual Western Heritage Day shows by Corinne Westman. Whether they were dressed as gummy bears, Mario Kart racers, or Disney characters, the Western Airs made sure everyone was enjoying Western Heritage Day. About 500 Western Airs and adult volunteers hosted four performances July 19th for the annual event celebrating the National Day of the American Cowboy. The Western Airs showcased a variety of mounted and ground routines, from trick riding and interpretive dancing to whips and batons. Outside the arena at Fort Western Air, which is adjacent to the Jefferson County Fairgrounds, attendees tried roping and stick horse riding and stopped by the petting zoo, among other activities. The Golden-based organization, which was founded in 1949 and has about 1,000 members aged 9 to 19, has hosted Western Heritage Day shows for almost 20 years. The event draws a lot of summer camps and families. So the performers put together silly, crowd-pleasing routines the younger attendees will enjoy, volunteer instructor Karen Kronauj explained. The performers described how, while it's a long day that requires tons of preparation and behind-the-scenes work, it's worth it to see the smiles on people's faces. I love seeing the kids' faces light up, said Jenna Lamb, who's 18, who's performed in the event three years now. Quinn Owen, 15, said this was only her second Western Heritage Day, and writing in performances like this can be nerve-wracking. However, the Westerners have practiced their routines so many times now that it's basically muscle memory, she said. We practice these drills so much they get nailed into our brains. Owen said. The organization has several performance teams like the Crimson Rangers and the Royal Rangers. Each developed its own routine around a unique theme, ranging from Star Wars to the Easter Bunny. Westerners on multiple performance teams have to do quick changes between routines. Emery King, 14, described how she'd be changing three times per show. She was performing with the Star Wars-themed bass team, the Easter Bunny-themed Liberty team, 
and the Mario Kart themed kart team. People don't always see all the hard work that goes into it, King said of the Western Heritage Day shows. She encouraged young people to sign up for the Westerners, saying they don't have to own a horse or have even ever ridden one to join. The organization is about teaching young people responsibility, discipline, and leadership, she and others commented. Lamb, Owen, and King said the Westerners practice about 10 hours a week, depending on the time of year. Along with taking care of the horses they own or rent, they do drills, diagram their routines, study equestrian safety, and more. As with extracurriculars, other extracurriculars, the three said Westerners has taught them good time management, they described, as they juggle those commitments with their schoolwork. Lamb, who graduated from high school this spring, will also graduate from Westerners this fall. Her final performance will be at the October 28th, 29th Horsecapades annual fundraising show. I'm a bit sad, but I'm also ready to move on, Lamb said, adding that she's considering returning as a volunteer instructor. Overall, the Westerners said the organization has a family atmosphere where everybody knows and encourages each other. The riders learn about teamwork and communication with their horses and with each other, as King Kronauj King and Kronauj explained. It's about developing good habits, King continued. Jefferson County kicks off two-year update of five plans and regulations. Teddy Jacobson. Jefferson County officials are looking to shake things up over the next two years. A long list of county plans will be reevaluated and potentially updated. Everything from wildfire evacuation to transportation policies are on the table in what's dubbed Together Jeffco. The county's comprehensive master plan, community wildfire protection plan, comprehensive emergency management plans, evacuation annex, transportation master plans, and land use code are among the plans that could be updated. The goal of this project, announced in July, is to redesign land use, plan for evacuations, and to align transportation policies and goals with goals, according to the county's website. County representatives said the process should provide a cohesive vision for the future of the county and identify priorities for addressing growth regulations and services. One of our goals is to help streamline our process and become more efficient as we work together to help articulate our community vision for Jefferson County. Jefferson County Development and Transportation Director Abel Montoya said in a recent press release. The county is currently evaluating plans, reviewing existing conditions, and developing a process to include the public in its decision-making. This phase is anticipated to conclude in August of this year, according to the county's website. The following phases involve multiple stages of drafting plans and regulations. The county anticipates this process to be completed by July 2024. Public review of the land use code is expected for December of 2024 and public hearings in early 2025. The county anticipates the project to take 18 to 24 months with adoption of the other four plans planned for the October of 2024. Residents can get involved with the drafting process through public workshops, surveys, and open houses over the next two years by visiting Together Jeffco website, togetherjeffco.com.
Arvada City Council passes 3.5% trash hauling fee increase. Opt-outs included. Arvada residents to pay more for trash hauling, including those who don't use city service. By Lillian Fuglay and Riley Dunn. Arvada City Council has voted to increase trash hauling fees by 3.5%. This increase applies to all fees, including the minimum service fee, and is effective August 1st. The increase passed 5-1 at the July 17th meeting, with John Marriott's voting no and Mark Williams absent. Though the increase passed, discussion before the vote focused on the negative impacts of the price change, especially the minimum service fee, which is charged to residents who opt out of the city's program in favor of coordinating with their own trash hauler. Prior to the votes, Marriott explained that he chose to vote no because he believes those who do not utilize the city service should not be subject to price increases. What gets me into my no vote is the fee that people are paying to not do business with Republic Services, Marriott said during the re-meeting. To have that go up as a cost for inflation, there's certainly no inflation in not doing business with somebody. The city's contract with Republic Service Services requires that anytime trash hauling prices increase, all fees increase by 3.5%, meaning that the minimum service fee must increase along with the other service fees. The price increases are to be triggered by market conditions, including comparisons to other tra- local trash haulers and inflation. At the, end of two, at the end of years two through six of this agreement, contractor, Republic, shall have the ability to increase the charges for residential collection service, the contract states. During this option period, the city will consider an adjustment to the pricing structure. Any price adjustments shall not exceed the amount being passed on and shall also not exceed 3.5% annually, subject to approval by city council resolution. Because of the language of the contract, Council Member David Jones decided to vote yes, he said. I think that if we could go back and renegotiate, that my vote would be different, Jones said before the vote. But because I don't believe we can go back and renegotiate at this point, I don't want to hamper the team and their ability to move forward. Pfeiffer echoed Jones' sentiments, but added that he would like to renegotiate the contract before next year to exclude the minimum service fee from future increases. We do have an obligation, and it's not for us to debate the existing contract, Pfeiffer said after the meeting. I want to stress to city staff the importance of the minimum service fee and let them know that there are still people on council who want to see the fee not be included on increases. Before next year, I would like to renegotiate the contract, Pfeiffer continued. I agree with where John Marriott was coming from, but we can't renegotiate on the Dias but we need to make a best effort to get that removed out of the increases. Lauren Simpson also voted yes and explained that she did so primarily because of inflation. Simpson stated that the 3.5% increase cap kept the price hike from being a greater burden on residents since inflation has outpaced 3.5% recently. This vote was quite simply a part of the contract to account for inflation, Simpson said. The city team negotiated rates back in 2019, and those were locked in for the first two years of the program, July 2021-23. The contract stipulated that after two years, rates could be raised to account for inflation, but we thankfully included a cap of 3.5% to any raise. 
We wouldn't have known it back in 2019, but including that cap now seems a brilliant foresight. This capped raise is far below what actual inflation has been. Simpson continued, I'm thrilled our Vadans will continue to save money because of the thoughtful negotiations led by our city team. In June 2020, Council approved a single-hauler trash service contract with Republic Services by a tightly contested 4-3 vote. Current Council members Lauren Simpson and Bob Pfeiffer voted yes, along with former City Council members Nancy Ford and Dot Miller. Council members David Jones, John Marriott, and Mark Williams voted against the contract at that time. Following the vote, a recall attempt was made to remove the assenting majority from office. The recall attempt failed due to the organizer's inability to secure enough signatures by the filing deadline. Simpson and Marriott are both vying for a chance to be mayor in November's election, as Williams is term limited. Pfeiffer is seeking re-election to the city council as well. Lisa Ferret and Randy Mormon have two more years on their terms, and Jones is not seeking re-election. Increased fees effective August 1st. $20.34 for a 95-gallon cart and 95-gallon recycling cart. $16.06 for a 65-gallon cart and 95-gallon recycling cart. $11.79 for a 35-gallon cart and a 95-gallon recycling cart. $5.28 for minimum service. We Ridge Farmer's Market, an incubator for local small businesses. By Joe Davis. The spot nestled into the corner of Depew and 29th Streets in Wheat Ridge comes alive on Wednesday nights. It's the Wheat Ridge Farmer's Market, and it's created by sisters and co-owners of Wheat Ridge Poultry and Meats, Heidi McCarty and Jessica Bobitsky. What began as a post-COVID attempt to bring the community back to eating and buying local has become so much more. The sisters say that they have always advocated for small businesses. Quote, since we've owned Wheat Ridge Poultry and Meats, we try to support as many local products, producers, and processors as we can. Bobitsky explained. COVID really brought the need for a market home for them, according to Bobitsky. After COVID, we really saw the need for local food producers, and so we applied for a grant, Bobitsky said, adding that Wheat Ridge hasn't had a farmer's market in years. And so we wanted to just bring back the farmer's market to Wheat Ridge as well, Bobitsky said. The results was a market on a property that the sisters already owned in the heart of the community they wanted to serve. They sought and acquired grant funding to help keep the costs to producers down. This allows the market to give producers an opportunity to open a space at the market for a $10 fee that covers the entire season. Bobitsky explained that they wanted to also support new producers. When you're starting out as a small producer, it's very difficult to go and be in a farmer's market, Bobitsky explained. She said, this is tough. When they're charging you several hundred dollars just to be in the market, and then 10 to 20% of your sales has to go back to that farmer's market. Bobitsky understands that farmers' markets are businesses, but she says that model excludes a lot of small producers. The market they created has evolved into an incubator of sorts. Vendors find that the space is more conducive to sharing information and collaboration. The community also provides traffic and space to build skills. 
The farmer's market vendors are happy that they have such a communal space for their businesses. 12-year-old Lila Narasi of Lilacs Designs is one of the kid vendors. She found the market by word of mouth and decided to give it a try. Narasi said she receives a lot of knowledge from other vendors, and Narasi's mom, Casey, called the market a learning experience. The Colorado State University Extension Office Master Gardener Nate Guckner was there to promote classes and to reach out to the Wheat Ridge community. Sherry Juarez, also of the Extension Office, explained that the market allows them a chance to connect with the Wheat Ridge community. Emily Young, the owner of the Purple Dragon, a candy and sweets producer, called the farmer's market, quote, a good starter market. She described the affordable booth fee and the traffic from the community as the quality she loves most. Bringing the community together to collaborate, train young entrepreneurs, and promote local producers is only part of the market's mission, according to Bobitsky. I think that we have to change the view of the community as to why we need a shop to shop local, she said. I mean, people have a need to really evaluate their spending, their food dollars. She added that local food and arts help the producers and the buyers in the long run. Bobitsky said the market is her vision. She wrote the plans and grants. But McCarty runs the team on the ground, manages the vendors, and coordinates everything at the markets. McCarty is the one who does the groundwork to make the market happen. I just kind of gave my overall vision to Heidi and the team, Bobitsky said. And they're the ones that kind of went forward with it. The nice thing about us is we work really well together. And we are kind of like a small family. We all just do what's going to get done. Bobitsky hopes that the market grows even larger. Bringing more local producers together with people looking to shop locally. I know Heidi says she always wants the market to become like Pearl Street Market, Bobitsky said, but really would like to keep the market free. And I'd love it if we do expand it. We always joke that we're going to take over all of Depew Street so that we can just continue to have more and more vendors show up in their neighborhood. Above all, the sisters want the market to fully benefit the local producers starting there. I really would like to see these vendors to see their businesses grow, Bobitsky said. The Wheat Ridge Farmer's Market is from 5 to 7 p.m. every Wednesday through September at Wheat Ridge Poultry and Meats on 29th and Depew Streets. For more information, check out the website, wheatridgepoultry.com. Jeffco's new I Voted sticker, A Reminder to Prepare for Election Season by Joe Davis. Jefferson County has a new sticker to show that you've done your civic duty. The new I Voted sticker design is out, and it reflects Jeffco's beautiful sunsets and the foothills and features she, the classic I Voted slogan in both English and Spanish. Everyone will have access to the sticker, even those who voted by mail. The sticker will be included inside each ballot mailed in Jeffco in October for the November 7th elections. According to Jeffco clerk and recorder Amanda Gonzalez, the sticker holds a few different symbols of the county's progress. The I Voted sticker has always been a symbol of hope and excitement about using our voice to affect political change, Gonzalez said. I'm excited to have some Jeffco-specific flair in this year's sticker. 
and to feature both English and Spanish text, which is more inclusive, just like Jeffco aims to be. The sticker design release is a sign that voting season is approaching. Here's some information about Gonzalez and the clerk's office that you should know. Ballot box and voting locations are live. Jefferson County's website now has an updated map of the places where you can cast your ballot. Jeffco has 40 drop boxes available throughout the county, and they are open October 16th. The boxes are open 24 hours a day through 7 p.m. election night. There are six voter service and polling center locations in Jeffco. Five of them open October 30th, and the one at the Colorado School of Mines opens on November 6th. In addition to casting a vote, you can drop off a ballot, replace a ballot, register to vote, update your registration, and even find an ADA-accessible voting machine. For more, find more information, a service and polling location, or your ballot box online. Jeffco still needs election judges. The clerk and recorder's office is still seeking election judges for the November elections. They encourage every Jeffco resident age 16 and over who is also registered to vote to apply. It's a paid job that would make an interesting resume builder for young people. You can find more information about the position and the application on the Jefferson County Elections webpage. Sign up for Ballot Tracks now. You can sign up for Ballot Tracks, the mail ballot locator and notification system now for the November election. The system will send messages by email, phone, or text about your ballot when it's received and when you should receive it. Ballot Tracks does not update your voter registration. You must do that at GoVoteColorado.gov. Sign up to track your ballot now before the bustle of the voting season and for parents back to school season. Sign up for Ballot Tracks on the Jeffco Elections webpage. Read up on voting security and more. Jefferson County offers a look at the security and safeguards taken to ensure that your ballot is protected. There are infographics, videos, and more. The county also created a list of key dates for election season. For example, the military and overseas ballots will be mailed on September 23rd. They update the information regularly, so check back if you are interested in pre-election equipment testing dates or post-election audit dates. Stay connected to the Jeffco elections processes, dates, and more by checking out the county elections webpage. Local voices, housing advocates, budget cuts could cause more homelessness by Eric Galatas, Public News Service. Colorado's minimum wage workers would have to work 94 hours per week to afford a modest two-bedroom apartment, according to a new report. Even after a deal was struck to avoid a default on the nation's bills, Congress is still moving to cut roughly 22% from the U.S. Housing and Urban Development's budget. Kathy Alderman, Chief Community Chief Communications and Public Policy Officer at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, said cuts to affordable housing and rental assistance programs would be devastating for the nation's most vulnerable populations. If that happens, almost a million households that are currently receiving rental assistance could lose that rental assistance at a time when housing costs are increasing, Alderman pointed out. It's likely that those households would fall into homelessness, end quote. 
The GOP-controlled House of Representatives passed legislation in April calling for across-the-board cuts to non-military spending, which the Biden administration estimates would result in lost rental assistance for 10,000 Colorado families, including older adults, people with disabilities, and families with children. Families of color have long faced discriminatory housing policies dating to soldiers returning from World War II being denied down payments under the GI Bill and being denied mortgages in certain neighborhoods. Alderman pointed out such families would also take the biggest hit if Congress succeeds in cutting housing assistance now. Those households are going to be at much greater risk of falling into housing insecurity, Alderman emphasized and particularly homelessness at a time when the black and Native American populations are already disproportionately represented in the households experiencing homelessness. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition report ranked Colorado the eighth least affordable state in the nation for housing. Alderman argued the best and most efficient use for, of tax dollars from HUD, Proposition 123 funding and other recent affordable housing policies is to invest in solutions for the lowest income households with the greatest need. If we don't stabilize those individuals, they will fall into the cycle of homelessness, Alderman continued. They will draw down more resources because it is much more expensive to be in the cycle of homelessness than it is to stay stably housed. This public news service story via the Associated Press story share of which Colorado Community Media is a member. Why Blind Historian Tells the Stories of the Blind Peggy Chong Describes What Motivates Her by Teddy Jacobson It only takes an introduction and a few minutes of talking with historian Peggy Chong to learn something new. Chong, also known as the Blind History Lady, can easily rattle off countless names and stories of blind people throughout history. For instance, you may know Stevie Wonder, but you probably don't know Governor Elias Ammons. Chong has researched the stories of the blind for over three decades. She excitedly shares their biographies with anyone willing to listen, primarily through a monthly email list. Quote, People often find the stories hard to believe, that there's something special about these blind people, Chong said. If you read on, you do find that there was something special about them because they just never quit. Chong, who lives in Aurora, was blind, born blind into a family that understood her struggles. Three of her four sisters and her mother were also born blind. Chong said the support and connections she received from her family is rare for the majority of blind people. Everything you do feels like you're reinventing the wheel, Chong said, and you may not have a community around you to help you not feel that way. Almost 8% of the U.S. population are visually impaired in some way, according to Georgetown University's Health Policy Institute. Just over 4 million Americans aged 16 to 64 have a visual disability, and another 3 million people 65 years old and older have one, according to the National Federation of the Blind. Chong said most people go blind later in life due to health issues or injuries. 
She said it is easy for people to lose faith in their abilities because of a stigma about what blind people can do. Too often we're told that a blind person can't do that, but blind people throughout the years have accomplished so much in their work, Chong said. The main story she tells involves the jobs and work that blind people have had over the years. Over 70% of potentially employable adults with a vision disability in the United States do not have full-time jobs, according to Cornell University's U.S. disability statistics. Chong said sharing stories of blind people inspires people today to work the jobs that they want to do in spite of the adversary. For example, Chong said most Coloradans don't know the state had a blind governor. Elias Ammons was the 19th governor of the state, serving from 1913 to 1915. Although he had some vision, Chong said, it was not enough to read or recognize people across the room. The irony of some of the discrimination is unbelievable when you find out what these blind people have accomplished later in their lives, she said. Chong moved to the state five years ago where she almost immediately started searching through the records of the Colorado Center for the Blind Basement. She said she discovered records dating back more than 100 years. She led the effort to digitize and transcribe the pages for blind people to read through optical character recognition, which is a system that scans printed text so that it can be spoken in synthetic speech or saved to a computer file. The project started four years ago, and Chong said she is almost done putting the files on the Colorado Virtual Library website. President of the National Federation of the Blind of Colorado's Jessica Beecham said Chong's work is vital for showing other blind people their rich history is out there and worth sharing. As a blind person, I never knew our history, Beecham said in a press release. I, also th I thought we as blind people were always the first to do or try anything that is so lonely. But through her research, I and thousands more are learning that we have broad shoulders of our blind ancestors to stand on, inspiring us to climb higher and reach further. Chong won the Jacob Bulletin Award at the annual convention of the National Federation of the Blind in Houston, Texas, earlier this month. The award comes with a five with five thousand dollars to help her advance her research into the history of the blind of the United States. The Dr. Jacob Bulletin Awards honor the indiv individuals and organizations that are a positive force in the lives of blind people. The namesake of the award. Bulletin, 1888 to 1924, is hailed as the world's first physician who was blind from birth. Each year, the National Federation of the Blind presents the awards at its annual convention. This is the second time she received this award for her work, the first coming in 2018. Her new project will take her to the Library of Congress archives in Washington, D.C., where she will research and tell the history of an awards program through the Harmon Foundation from 1928 to 1932. This award means a lot to me, Chong stated. It represents the validation by my peers that my work to uncover the lost history of our blind ancestors is important. To join Chong's monthly email list, send an email to theblindhistorylady at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. 
Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denver Right, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Mayor Johnston Declares State of Emergency on Homelessness on Day One by Robert Davis. From Denver Right, I'll be reading Mike Johnston's Close to Securing Almost 200 Permanent Housing Units in Northeast Park Hill by Kyle Harris. And Overdose Reversal Kits are being installed at Mission Ballroom and other AEG venues in Denver. Here's Why by Isaac Vargas. From Westward, I'll be reading Crime is Down in Lodo This Year, Despite What People Think by Katie Cheshire. And Boulder Holding Event to Help Immigrants with Questions About Immigration Law by Benito L. Kelty. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Mayor Johnston Declares State of Emergency on Homelessness on Day One by Robert Davis. On his first day in office, Denver Mayor Mike Johnston declared a state of emergency on homelessness with the goal of rehousing 1,000 unsheltered residents by the end of the year. Johnston said the declaration will help the city use its resources to move people experiencing unsheltered homelessness into stable, permanent housing. It would also help Denver move much more quickly through regulatory processes like permitting and zoning reviews and can give Denver access to additional federal funding if needed. The declaration will last for seven days and Denver City Council will oversee extending it as well as oversee all related expenditures, Johnston added. We want to have a city where no one has to sleep on the streets, Johnston said. Johnston added that his administration will be touring all 78 Denver neighborhoods to discuss what resources can be brought to the table. That includes talking with landlords and looking into converting old hotels into supportive housing. City Council members will lead these discussions, Johnston said, and added that he will appoint 10 individuals to his administration to make sure the city is effectively using its resources. The city has also begun the process of identifying city-owned lots of land where it can start building micro-communities for unhoused folks, Johnston said. Mike Johnston's campaign made much ado about his plans to build micro-communities, which could operate similarly to the safe outdoor spaces piloted by the nonprofit Colorado Village Collaborative. The safe outdoor space sites include small shelters, showers, hygienic services, and wraparound services. Johnston said the city has already identified 197 plots of land where these micro-communities could reside. He also gave a nod to Denver's advocacy community in his announcement, which has been advocating for a similar solution for several years. We hear you, we agree with you, and we're going to put the resources of our city behind solving the problem, Johnston said. Johnston declared a local state of emergency at a time when local polling shows 79% of Colorado voters think homelessness is either an extremely serious problem or a very serious problem, according to the Colorado Health Foundation's latest Pulse poll. Johnston's plan also follows closely in the footsteps of Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass, who issues a similar emergency declaration upon assuming office in December of 2022. Bass's declaration gave her the authority to expedite contracts to build new housing units and give the city additional powers to acquire rooms, property, and land 
for the purpose of creating shelter, according to a press release. As of June 22nd, there have been more than 1,600 units approved for construction in Los Angeles with an average approval time of just 37 days, which represents a time saving of almost six months, according to Bass's office. The latest homeless count in Los Angeles showed a 10% increase in the city alone, where more than 46,000 people call the streets home every night, according to the Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority. In Denver, there are nearly 4,800 people experiencing homelessness on a given night, according to federal one-night count data. The Metro Denver Homeless Initiative also found that more than 27,000 unique individuals accessed homeless services in 2022, according to the agency's State of Homelessness report. This is the most important problem for many of us that Denver has, Johnston said. We don't have the final answer on what the solution will be, but we will bring together the nonprofit, business, advocacy, and religious communities to address this issue. The next two articles are from Denverite. Mike Johnston's close to securing almost 200 permanent housing units in Northeast Park Hill by Kyle Harris. Denver Housing Authority has put in an offer for nearly $26 million to purchase the Best Western Central Park at 4595 Quebec Street for 193 units of permanently supportive housing and one unit for staff. If the contract goes through, funding is secured, the hotel rooms can be converted to permanent housing by the end of the year and people living in encampments move in, Mayor Michael, Mike Johnston will be nearly a fifth of the way to meeting his goal of housing 1,000 people living on the streets by year's end. Unsheltered homelessness is an emergency situation in Denver, and we are laser-focused on bringing 1,000 people safely inside while permanently decommissioning encampments by the end of 2023, Johnston said in a statement. This acquisition is the first key piece of that puzzle and puts us on a solid path to achieving our goal, connecting our unhoused neighbors to housing and low-barrier shelter, and improving quality of life in neighborhoods across our city. How will it work? The city will lease the property from the Denver Housing Authority. At least 40% of the units will be dedicated to tenants who make 30% of the area median income, or less than $24,650 for an individual and $35,150 for a family of four. According to the Department of Housing Stability, HOST, $11 million will come from DHA Delivers for Denver, D3, bond funds, $16 million will come from a bridge loan through Northern Trust, and HOST will be asking Denver City Council to dedicate $16 million in pandemic-era American Rescue Plan Act money to go to the bridge lender. The majority of the units have kitchenettes, meaning they already have some outfitting to serve as supportive housing. Denver Housing Authority estimates the closing will take place in mid-August, and the city will start leasing the building from DHA on September 1st. These sorts of hotel purchases and partnerships between DHA and the city are not new under Johnston. Mayor Michael Hancock's administration collaborated on 10 similar projects funded, in part, by the Denver Affordable Housing Fund. While units are being converted to permanent supportive housing, some will be used as temporary individual shelter. Who will benefit from this is uncertain. The city is in the process of closing the roadway in, a shelter for people who aren't cisgendered men. 
Whether they will have dibs on the non-congregate shelter is uncertain, and the city did not respond to immediate requests for comment. While many roadway residents have housing coming, most still are looking for a place with their voucher, or still waiting on a voucher, or have nothing lined up, according to a Friday statement from the homeless advocacy group House Keys Action Network Denver. Residents have demanded the city provide bridge hotel stay until their housing is secured. The city has committed to this for some, but not all residents. In a conversation with people experiencing homelessness, Johnston said he'd work with current roadway in residents to get into other housing. We're proud to help move another hotel acquisition forward for supportive housing, said host executive director Laura Brzezinski in a statement. Host is excited about the opportunity to provide non-congregate shelter as an interim use at this site prior to its conversion to housing. Overdose reversal kits are being installed at Mission Ballroom and other AEG venues in Denver. Here's why, by Isaac Vargas. Holding up a plastic box with bright red overdose emergency decals on the side in neon emergency overdose kit lettering on the front, Mission Ballroom employee True Morse drills in the last two screws to secure it into a wall in the venue. Two white boxes of Narcan sit inside with small business cards sharing information on how to administer the potentially life-saving overdose, overdose reversal drug. The venue and its management company, AEG Presents Rocky Mountains, have partnered with Keep the Party Safe, a drug awareness campaign to install emergency overdose kits containing doses of naloxone for concert goers to access. Each kit contains two boxes and four total doses of Narcan, a medication designed to rapidly reverse opioid, opioid overdoses and instruction cards for how to administer the drug. Bathrooms are also equipped with Keep the Party Safe signage attached to bathroom mirrors that share helpful information pertaining to the fentanyl overdose crisis. Kits will be installed in other AEG venues across the city, including the Gothic Theater, the Bluebird Theater, the Ogden Theater, Fiddler's Green Amphitheater, and First Bank Center. This is something that we've talked about for a long time, said Kevin Anderson, general manager of AEG Presents Rocky Mountains. Narcan becoming available over the counter certainly changed the game and the conversation on our end. We thought, we can get some of these and have them on site. That's when Keep the Party Safe reached out about a partnership, and we were so on board to have somebody else who knows a lot more to help us out. Earlier this year, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, approved the selling of the leading version of naloxone Narcan without a prescription. It's expected to be available later this year, but there is still uncertainty whether some insurances will cover the cost. Making naloxone available where people use drugs is welcome news, said Lisa Reveal, executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center. Truly people who use drugs are the true first responders in this overdose crisis, Reveal said. They need access to naloxone first and foremost. According to the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention, 920 Coloradans died from a fentanyl-involved overdose in 2022. In Denver alone, 453 people died from overdoses, and more than 50% of those involved fentanyl. We are in the worst overdose crisis we've been in with the most unpredictable drug supply, Reveal said. 
For organizations like Dance Safe, a health and safety nonprofit that's committed to safe music and nightlife experiences since 1998, making Naloxone accessible is a step in the right direction, but not the only one that should be taken. Having more access to Naloxone across the board is a good thing, period, said Rachel Clark, education manager for Dance Safe. In an ideal world, we would have drug checking services because naloxone is a responsive measure, not a preventive measure. Although drug checking devices like fentanyl test strips have proven to successfully detect fentanyl in illicit drugs, some states still consider the kits illegal drug paraphernalia. As of 2019, Colorado is not one of those states. We kind of had to draw the line on test kits, Anderson said. On a national scale, there are states that still view test strips as drug paraphernalia. On a corporate level, AEG has not approved the use of or handing out test kits. Matthew Cole, co-founder of Majestic Collaborations, consults agencies, festivals, and venues in emergency and disaster preparedness. Contracted by Denver Arts and Venues, he's well aware of the crisis and believes safety should be considered from even before a concertgoer arrives at a venue. Everything from the first touch, when they buy the tickets, what the website says, accessibility, water, when they walk through the door, all of that built environment has to do with safety, Cole said. Creating safe places is an art. Cole added that it's important to consider just how much the concert-going community has evolved over the years and just how much more vigilant venue organizers must be in curating a safe environment for everyone. It's good to have naloxone up in the corner in a box, Cole said, but real harm reduction requires human beings to make connections with folks, inviting organizations out to the table and maybe even paying them to be there. The following articles are from Westward. Crime is down in Lodo this year, despite what people think, by Katie Cheshire. Revelers flooded the city's streets on Monday, June 12th, to celebrate the Denver Nuggets championship win. But it wasn't all fun and games for people partying in Lodo, where crime has become a major topic in recent years. Outside Haters and Company at 1920 Blake Street, off-duty Denver Police Department officer Adam Glasby, who was working security, saw a group of men fighting in front of the bar and wound up slamming one of them into the pavement, knocking the individual unconscious. The Denver DA charged Glasby with felony assault on Thursday, July 27th. A block away, at 20th and Market Streets, a suspected drug-related dispute led to 10 people being shot in the early morning of June 13th. While none of the victims died, several had to be hospitalized. And the incident served as another example of why some fear going downtown. But looking at the area's crime stats tells a different story. In Lower Downtown, crime has actually fallen 19% year-to-date in 2023 compared to 2022, according to the DPD, despite what many people think. DPD is continuously monitoring crime trends and adjusting resources to help address trends and reduce crime, such as our efforts during the week-end-out crowd, as an example, the department says through a spokesperson. At a press conference following the June 13th shooting, Denver Police Chief Ron Thomas said that the intersection of 20th and Market had become known for its potential for violence, particularly when nearby bars let out. 
The DPD has worked to address the presence of guns and drugs in the area, stationed extra officers there, and implemented additional crowd control training in an attempt to combat the problem. The DPD's public crime map, which tracks national incident-based reporting system data, currently shows a few hotspots downtown, including the area of 20th and Market, but department efforts seem to be working. Jared Parrott, who has owned 5280 Custom Framing at 1528 15th Street on the edge of Lodo since 2009, says the area might be busier than ever now, and crime isn't a big factor. There's a lot of talk about some issues on the 16th Street Mall, and there's a lot of issues behind Union Station, but by and large, I think Lodo overall has fared very well, he says. Behind Union Station, from Wiwata to Little Raven Streets, between 15th and 19th Streets, larceny has been the crime with the highest occurrence since the start of 2023, with 54 incidents. In particular, there's a cluster of larceny reports at 17th and Wawada Streets, where there is a parking garage with a Whole Foods on top of it, and apartments on top of that. Currently, there are only two crime categories with double-digit incidents behind Union Station, public disorder with 18, and drugs and alcohol with 12. Everything else has been in the single digits, with five aggravated assaults taking place so far this year. In the ballpark district, which has slightly blurry boundaries, Coors Field didn't exist in 1988 when many official Denver neighborhood designations were made. Public disorder represents the most common crime, with 98 instances. To get these stats, ballpark was measured from 20th Street to Broadway, between Blake and Arapahoe Streets. In that area, there have been more than 85 motor vehicle break-ins this year. There's also a cluster of crime on Lawrence Street between 22nd Street and Park Avenue, with 30 instances of larceny and 21 instances of other crimes. At 24th and Blake, there's a smaller cluster of various crimes with 24 reported instances. The River North Art District, which includes parts of Globeville, El Rio Swansea, Cole, and Five Points, is a larger area than what's behind Union Station or Ballpark, so there are more instances of lawlessness, but no hotspots like the ones seen elsewhere in downtown Denver. Hotspots are fluid and fluctuate regularly based on reported crime data, the DPD says. Theft of items from a motor vehicle is currently the top crime in Rhino, with auto theft a close second. There has been one murder in the area this year. A woman killed a resident at a Colorado Coalition for the Homeless building at 3440 Park Avenue. In Lodo itself, an area that runs from Cherry Creek to 20th Street between Wincoop Street and the alley between Market and Larimer Streets, there have been two murders in 2023. One occurred in the 1900 block of Market and the other in the 1600 block of Wazee. In all of these downtown neighborhoods combined, those were the only three murders so far this year. As in the area behind Union Station, Larceny is the most common crime in Lodo, with 95 instances. However, public disorder is nearly as high, with 83 reports. There have been 51 aggravated assaults and 32 auto thefts. Generally, 20th and Market has a high concentration of varying incidents related to larceny, drugs and alcohol, and other crimes against persons. Parrott has a bit of a distance from that hotspot, but he says that any altercations that happen at clubs or bars during the night 
don't seem to be dampening activity during the day. Knocking on wood when I say this, but there seems to be less issues now than we've had in the past, he tells Westward, noting that his framing business fared well during the pandemic because people were putting more time into restoring their homes. He says he did notice more people seeming to need access to mental health resources, and an uptick in those experiencing homelessness who were looking for places to charge their phones. But those aren't crimes, and he says they did not factor into the safety of his business. 20th and Market isn't the only place with a concentration of crime. The intersection of Colfax Avenue and Broadway, right at the edge of downtown at Civic Center Park, is a much more active crime cluster than any other spot in downtown Denver, according to the DPD crime map. According to Parrott, proclamations overstating the dangers of Lodo have hurt businesses as much as the purported dangers would have. He cites a February 2022 story in the Denver Post about restaurant owners moving their business to the suburbs in which one chef infamously said that downtown is dead is a particularly irking moment. Who wants to go downtown, pastry chef Julian Renault, who owns La Belle French Bakery, asked in the story. According to Parrott's ledgers, plenty of residents want to spend time there. People seem to focus on if there's one bad experience instead of many, many good ones, he says. There's a lot of destination businesses down here that offer great services, great dining experiences, great nightlife, a great atmosphere. Lodo can often be a scapegoat for when bad things happen in the city, Parrott points out, with people focusing on incidents like those on June 12th and 13th, instead of looking at the bigger picture. In my view, Lodo's incredibly safe, and it's been incredibly safe, he contends. But there are exceptions, and some of them make headlines. On July 22nd of 2022, six people were shot at 20th and Larimer Streets as the bars let out for the evening, and police responded to a report of an altercation. When a suspect dropped a gun, three officers fired. The suspect was injured, as were six bystanders. After a grand jury investigation, Officer Brandon Ramos was charged with numerous counts of second and third degree assault. His case is pending, as is that of the suspect, Jordan Waddy. Less than a year later came the incidents after the Nuggets win. On July 27th, Denver District Attorney Beth McCann announced that Glaspie had been charged with a felony count of second-degree assault for his actions on June 12th. Out of respect for the legal process, the Denver Police Department will not comment on the second-degree assault charge filed against Officer Glaspie, the DPD said in a statement. However, the department does share that it had already opened an internal investigation regarding the incident and placed Glaspie on a non-patrol assignment. Now that the felony charge is filed, the officer has been suspended without pay until the legal proceedings are over. Boulder Holding Event to Help Immigrants with Questions About Immigration Law by Benito L. Kelty For many people, immigration law can seem like rocket science. The city of Boulder hopes to change that. Teaming up with the University of Colorado Boulder Law School, city officials will hold informational classes on immigration law this Saturday, July 29th, for anyone with questions on the subject. Experts will be in attendance from 10 to 11.30 a.m. inside the city council chambers at 1777 Broadway to inform residents about several different topics. Free snacks and child care services will be available. 
It's no secret that our immigration system can be complicated, says Anna Silvia Avendano Curiel, racial equity policy advisor for the city of Boulder. We hope that these sessions answer some of the most common questions that people may have on how to navigate their immigration process so that people may feel empowered to continue making informed decisions. The Saturday event is the first in a series of informational sessions on immigration law that Boulder is looking to hold at least three times a year. Our goal is to connect immigrants in the Boulder area with more information, says city spokesperson Emily Sandoval. This is definitely a reflection of the city's renewed commitment to racial equity. City council members passed a racial equity plan in the early 2021 with a goal of closing gaps so race does not predict one's success while improving outcomes for all, according to the Boulder website. These informational sessions are being put on by the city's Office of Equity and Inclusion. It's the city's charge now to really pay more attention to issues that affect people of color in our community, including immigrants, Sandoval says. We're really making a concerted effort to serve those it needs and respond to questions folks have. Each informative session will have a main topic focused on common questions that the CU Law School gets from immigrants. Saturday's topic will be changing one's immigration status. An expert in immigration law will begin the day with a presentation on how to update immigration status through a family member. Say you have a citizen child who's turned 18 or you got married to an American citizen. There are ways to change your immigration status through a family member, Sandoval explains. In partnership with the CU Law School, we know that this is one of the areas of greatest interest to immigrants in our community. That's a question they get a lot. So we're hoping to provide more information about some of the intricacies of the legal system and how folks get those questions addressed. Boulder City officials believe that dozens of immigrants in the community have questions such as this one and will attend the event, which will be a Spanish first presentation, according to Sandoval. All of the information will be presented in Spanish, and there will be interpretation into English for those who require that, she says. The, two, the event will also be recorded and uploaded to the city's YouTube page for those who are unable to attend. Boulder hopes to host the next program in the series in the fall, but a date has not yet been set. A third iteration will also take place before the end of the year, but is still being planned. More information about future classes will be available on Saturday, Sandoval says. While the program is geared toward the local immigrant community, it's technically open to anyone in Colorado who could benefit from it. However, Sandoval notes that many of the resources that will be promoted at the event are Boulder-specific. Our focus is local, but we are certainly opening the doors to anyone who wants to connect with our sources or could benefit, she says. One of the challenges might be if we're connecting to resources that are specific to people who live in Boulder down the line. Boulder's immigrants are a small but very important part of our community and our economy, Sandoval says. The city has a population of about 330,000 people, and about 46,000 of them, or 14%, are Hispanic, according to U.S. Census data. As many as 34,000 Boulder residents were born in another country, the U.S. Census estimates. Most of them are from Latin America and Asia. We have immigrants who primarily speak Spanish coming from Mexico, Latin America, and South America, Sandoval says. 
We also have a fairly substantial South Asian community, including a Nepali community that's a 